Mark 15, verses 16 to 39. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this desire, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Hi, good morning. And uh, let me add my welcome to that of Don's. And let me say that I am so glad that you could be here this morning. Let's pray to God now. Our Father in heaven, we come to the cross. And we plead with you that the message of the cross would be to us not foolishness, but your wisdom and power. And we pray this in the name of the one who is crucified there, and whom you raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Reading through Mark chapter 15, and it's clear that Mark wants us to reflect on the 
kingship of Jesus. You can't miss it. The theme is everywhere here. Jesus is a king. But he's not like any king we innately understand, is he? Because he's a mocked king. A crucified king. And Mark is stirring us to ask, what sort of king is this? Most kings almost universally rule by majesty. They rule by instilling awe in people. They rule by instilling respect in people. They might rule by brute power and, where necessary, the death of other people. When the Roman emperor Titus put down a Jewish rebellion in 70 AD, he crucified so many people that they literally ran out of wood. We might not like that kind of king, but that is the kind of king the world innately understands, a king who's awesome, powerful, terrifying even. Jesus is a king, but he's a king who wears not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He's a king who rules not by oppression and death of others, but by his own death for the sake of others. He's a crucified king. What do you make of that? Mark gives us two normal responses people have to the claim that Jesus is the king. It's, it's the way people have always responded. It's the way people respond today to this claim that Jesus is a king. The most common is mockery. A suffering king is a joke. That's how people in our passage see Jesus. In verses 16 to 20, for instance, he is dressed for a mock royal court. So take a look from verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that's the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. What a pathetic king, they think. How safe we are in doing this to him, they think. It's hilarious, they think. Jesus is dressed here for a mock royal court. Next, verses 21 to 26, he's executed under a mock royal title. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and that just locates all this in history. Presumably this was a man many of Mark's readers knew. He was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And it's likely then that Jesus is already too weak to do so, which again paints Jesus as not at all majestic. It goes on, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. I was reading this passage with a friend from our church this week. And we were struck, uh, last week, um, we were struck by how matter of fact, and yet how loaded, those four words are. And they crucified him. Why isn't there more description here? Well, it's probably because in the first century, crucifixion was common. And yet horrific. So shameful that it wasn't proper to go beyond the barest minimum in describing it. It wouldn't even be mentioned in polite conversation. Just today, we'd be highly unlikely to discuss the subject of rape at the dinner table. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Now, Pilate's intention with the sign was probably to insult the Jews. You guys are so pathetic that this is your king. This is the best you can do. The point is he obviously doesn't believe that Jesus, in Jesus' claims to be king. But then Pilate's not the only one. 
For not only is Jesus killed under a mock royal title, next, everyone mocks Jesus' royal claims. Take a look from verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And this surely is the pits. Even those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. How pathetic Jesus looks here. Everything that happens here happens not by him, but to him. He doesn't do a thing. This man who in his life has been so active, dynamic and dominant in his death looks so puny. What did he do in all this? Nothing. What did he say here? Not a word. What do you make of a king on a cross? Most people respond in mockery. Most people, when they look at Jesus, think I'm very safe in rejecting him. And when he says he's got some kind of claim on my life, well, I am very safe in ignoring Jesus and even laughing at him. And I'm very safe in ignoring and even laughing at anyone who follows Jesus and says I should too. But God's word gets us seeing these things differently. For one thing, for starters, let me put it like this. Put your hand up if you don't understand American football. Yeah, it's as I expected. Everyone in this room. To me, American football is a flurry of seemingly random activity, people running into each other, trying to hurt each other. But a little while back, a friend of mine who felt the same watched some weekly catch-up programmes on BBC iPlayer. And he said how on the show they froze the action before it's about to happen. And then they drew on the screen what's about to happen. And because they've drawn all that out in advance, when the action takes place, you know what you're looking for. Watch it without explanation, it's basically impossible to follow. But with the pundits, it makes sense. And you think, you know, these guys on the field, they actually know what you're doing. Well, God has done something similar for us. Hundreds of years in advance, God has arranged for us pundits. In the Bible, they're called prophets, but it's basically the same sort of thing. To explain to us what will happen when God's king, the Messiah, comes to save the world. And without their explanation, it's kind of meaningless activity, but with their prophecy, it makes sense. And, and there's that line behind what's going on here in chapter 15. Psalm 22, you see, is one such prophecy. It was written a thousand years before Jesus came. And it is astonishing how Psalm 22 lays out the events of this chapter in advance. So, for, for example, Psalm 22 begins with the line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what Jesus says in verse 34. Now also Psalm 22 says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. But that gets fulfilled in our passage when Jesus refuses to drink. Now, but you might be thinking, if Jesus knew Psalm 22, I mean, he could have just quoted, My God, my God, and say, I fulfilled Psalm 22. And it's easy for him just to refuse that drink and say he, quotes fulfilled it. But what about this? Um, in Psalm 22, there's also the line, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, which is exactly what happened here. It's in verse 24 of our passage. And how did Jesus control that one? Currently, he's on a cross. You see, these events that seemingly were just happening to passive puny Jesus were advertised centuries in advance by prophets that the God of, that the, 
the, the Son of God himself had sent. God's word gets us seeing things differently. And it's not just a thousand year old prophecy. Consider just two more aspects found in this part of God's, this part of God's word. In Mark's gospel. And the first is you read through Mark's gospel, you see that Jesus is uber powerful. Have you read, have you seen what Jesus can do? Look, there have been some classic songwriting partnerships down the years. Lennon and McCartney, Simon and Garfunkel. Some of us are now adding to that list Captain Awesomeness and Cutlery Boy, together known as Awesome Cutlery. And this is from their song, The Hero. He healed the sick. He calmed the storm. He saw 5,000. He fed them all. He raised the dead. He cured the blind. Drove out the legion. Restored a mind. He is the hero that we need. A man with power. And Mark's gospel shows that Jesus has power over everything and everyone. And that hasn't suddenly stopped in chapter 15. Now in his death, Jesus has all the power he ever had in his life. And doesn't that cause us to, to rethink these events? Yeah, yeah. And one more thing. Three times in Mark, Jesus has explicitly predicted he's going to die. If you want to impress your friends, just remember chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 10, verse almost 31. Let's hear that prediction from chapter 10. Just just listen to this. Jesus says, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. What do you know? So this mocking and this death is no accident. As we look at Jesus in chapter 15, through the lens of God's word in the Old Testament and in Mark's gospel so far, what are them we see that so many don't see? Let me offer you two things. First, we see a king in control to save his people. A king in control to save his people. If, if these events were foretold, if Jesus is in control such that his enemies, even his enemies, do what he wants, what kind of power does Jesus have? It is an extraordinary power. So the point is, he's using his power to save his people. It's amazing what they say in verse 31, isn't it? He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now, in fact, a miracle like that would never lead anyone truly to believe. Jesus teaches that in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus. God never compels people to believe by doing a miracle in front of them. It's not how it works. Jesus says if they won't believe on the basis of the scriptures, they'll never believe. But the point is, it's ironic, because Jesus could have come down any time he liked. On the cross, he's still uber-powerful. It is strength, not weakness, keeping him there. Moment by moment, Jesus chooses to stay nailed to the cross. He chooses the path of pain and suffering, mockery and humiliation, all to save and forgive God's lost children. He stayed on the cross precisely because this is his powerful way of doing what no one and nothing else could do, which is to save his people from their sins. Which is you, if you're one of his followers. Do you know what happens after each of Jesus' three death predictions? After each one, the disciples are in action and they do really badly. They absolutely tank. And our opinion of them goes down and down and down and down and down. And then each time, 
Jesus gives some discipleship training. And the standard of how good a follower of Jesus has to be keeps going up and up and up and up and up. Now, look, we've heard about flattening the curve of COVID-19. Um, let me introduce you to my glamorous uh, assistant, and we'll see a different kind of uh, uh, graph. You can see this as standard. That's the standard of discipleship. And then time through Mark's gospel. And as we go through Mark's gospel, we realise that the standard of the disciples goes down and down and down and down and down. But also, Jesus keeps ramping up and up and up and up the standard that he requires of his disciples. And so by the time we meet chapter 15, the gap is huge, enormous. And the question is, how can you bridge the gap? Or as the disciples put it in chapter 10 verse 26, who then can be saved? That's their big question, the big shock. 10.27, Jesus replies, with man, this is impossible. It's impossible to be good enough for God. That leaves us quite depressed. Yet the fact that Jesus has been predicting his death suddenly makes sense. Because the big answer to that problem comes in 10.45. The Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So do we see. Refusing to save himself. Is exactly. How he saves. Others. We'll say goodbye to that. Friends if you're one of Jesus' people. He goes to the cross. And he stays there. To save you. It wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was his love for you. But there's no way you can see that without the help of God's word explaining it to you. That this is a king in control to save his people. But then next to how? How does Jesus dying on a cross save anyone? That's what we find out next. Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning. For three long hours he hangs on the cross as the morning sun climbs across the sky. And then suddenly... At midday, it stops climbing, and it stops shining altogether. Daylight turns to darkness, and that's because this is, on the cross, a king bearing God's anger to save his people. Yes, it's a, it's a king in control to save his people, and next, a king bearing God's anger to save his people. Take a look at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, this wasn't an eclipse. No eclipse lasts for three hours. This darkness has no natural explanation. It was supernatural. It's from God. In the Bible, darkness during the day is a sign of God's anger, of God's judgment. And some of those pundits, I mean prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, they use darkness as part of the picture of God's final judgment on the whole world. In fact, Jesus himself, only a few days before this, had spoken of a day when, quote, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Again, he's talking about the darkness of God's final judgment on the whole world. Now, the fact that God uses darkness as a symbol of his anger poured out on human sin is worth pausing on. You see, true darkness is debilitating. 
Near the South Pole, there's no daytime for more than two months of the year. Biographers of polar explorers say that in all the world there is no desolation more complete than the polar night, and it has driven some people mad. You can't see forwards, so you don't know where you're going. You've no direction. You can't even see yourself. You don't know what you look like. You may as well have no identity. And you can't tell whether there's anyone around you, friend or foe. You're isolated. Well, friends, by nature, you and I are in spiritual darkness. Because by nature, we shut God out and he's the light. Perhaps you, some of you know that you do that in a, in a permanent way. Others know that, 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 that though we've let in the light, we, we do keep doing that. Keep shutting him out. We all need to know how serious our shutting God out is. How terrible God's anger is at our sin. Because then it makes the glory of the cross all the more glorious. Because at the cross, darkness comes early. And I don't just mean a few hours before sunset. The darkening of the sun as Jesus dies is an anticipation of the darkness of judgment day. Some of God's anger stored up for the final day of reckoning is being poured out in advance. The question then is this. On that first Good Friday, who was God judging? Take a look from verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus felt forsaken, abandoned by God, because Jesus received the judgment of God. Now, he did not lose favour from God, nor did he lose faith in God. No, Jesus was perfect and remained so at the cross. By quoting Psalm 22, he's saying he knows he is the ultimate suffering servant. Read that psalm through. You'll see unbroken trust in the Father, and that's what Jesus has on the cross. But still on the cross, the Father turned his face away. And we can only imagine the pain. Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a language of intimacy. To call anyone, my Hannah or my Charlie is affectionate. And my God is the way God said someone could address him if they have a personal relationship with him. So then, if during a Zoom chat after this service, one of my church members says to me, I never want to see you or talk to you again, I'll feel pretty bad. But if today my wife comes up to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that's even worse. That's a lot worse. Because the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. Well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This forsakenness, this loss, was between the Father and the Son, who had loved each other from all eternity. So then why? Why did they go through that? When Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a rhetorical question. The answer is for you, for me, for us, for all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. Jesus bore the weight of God's anger at your and my sin. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. The result, he was forsaken so that we would never have to be. He died the death we should have died so we can be saved from that coming punishment. 
and instead live forever in the light and presence of God. No, it wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was his love for you. So then how different this king on the cross looks now. Those hours on the cross represent the greatest, most powerful, dynamic, impressive achievement ever accomplished by any king, any human being ever, which is to save people from their sins so that they might live forever in the new creation with him. No one else has done that for humanity. You might say that those hours on the cross are Jesus' crowning glory. It's what make him king of kings. So then how do you, what do you make of a crucified king? One response we've looked at, you can mock him. But there is a warning here in our passage. Would you listen to what Jesus says when Jesus dies? Verse 37. I'm sorry, what what the passage says when Jesus dies. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Mark is not, I think, including this to speak so much of the access to God that that that, that might have spoken of and that that the Bible speaks of elsewhere because, because the temple is the place where God symbolically dwells. I think this is speaking more of the judgment of God on mockers. You see, in his gospel, every word Mark has said about the temple has been in the context of judgment. And this temple curtain, tearing in two, it's a visual aid of God's anger at anti-Jesus people, even if they are religious. If you or I continue as a mocker, then we will face the anger of God ourselves. And so if that's you, you have a choice. Either you endure it, or Jesus endures it for you. And perhaps, and and I pray to God, that what you've heard today will make you rethink your attitude to the crucified king. I'm sure, I so hope so. Then finally, we come to the second possible response to this king on a cross, which is to worship him. Look with me at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. What a moment this is. Back in chapter one, verse one, Mark tells us that Jesus is the son of God. But this is the first time a person in the gospel has acknowledged Jesus as the son of God. And when does it happen? When he saw how Jesus died. That is the power of the cross. It's the cross that demonstrates Jesus in all his glory. I stopped short with that awesome cutlery quote. Here are two lines that come next. He's the hero that we need, a man with power. He is the son of God. You know his name. And if you know his name, I'm sure that seeing him afresh today makes you want to worship your crucified king afresh. To bow before him. This king who isn't like any king you're likely to find, unless they've been influenced by him. This king who rules not by fear, majesty, standing on his dignity, wealth, armies, popularity, but by meekness, humility, faithfulness, forgiveness and love. A king who gets his way not through the death of his enemies, but through the death of himself. There is a sense in which, in this time of lockdown, 
while at this time COVID-19 is something of a ruler. It's ruling many people in our world just now, and it's right that we respond rightly to it. But it is dominating many of our emotions and far more. It's very powerful, and it's using its power to bully, to bring us suffering and death. Contrast that with Jesus, who is a king who gives light and life through his love and his death. So as you spend time in lockdown, for the sake of limiting sickness and death, keep in mind that at the cross, Jesus chose a lockdown that was far, far worse than ours. And he did so for the sake of dealing with the biggest sickness of sin and with eternal death. I really do mean keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. Is this not a king you can love and live for and boast about this Easter? Now, as you do, people will mock him and you. But they are people shadowed in darkness, facing God's judgment. They need to hear about this king and his crowning moment of glory. But then how could anyone stop you or I from worshipping him openly, publicly, boldly, gladly. After all, he stayed on the cross for us. He bore God's anger to save us. He's a total hero. Surely this man is the Son of God. Let's pray together. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Our Father God, we recognise how tempted we are to, to, to view things, how easily we view things differently, badly. We praise you that you give us your word, Lord God, to show us, to give us lenses to see things differently, to see that weakness is power, failure, achievement. We pray, Lord God, that as we understand that Jesus could so easily have saved himself, but he stayed to save others. We pray that this, our King, in his weakness, would lead us to bow before him this Easter and beyond. For his name's sake.